So today we have a very special guest, Lee Jacobs, the founder and general partner of Long Journey VC. Now, Lee has been an investor for over a decade, investing in notable companies like Loom, Wonderschool, Pipeify, along with Cyan Bannister at Long Journey VC, investing in companies like SpaceX, Uber, Thumbtack, Notion, Affirm, and many more. So first off, thank you, Lee, for taking the time to join the show. How are you doing today? Great. I'm super excited to be here and appreciate you reaching out and making this happen. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. So let's start all the way at the beginning. You studied sociology at UPenn. Did you, you were interested in investing the venture space at the time, or how did you start to learn about it and get interested in the area? Yeah. So I think my first like in, in, thought around being involved in investing in general was through my dad, who worked on Wall Street. One of the ways that I think I found to connect with him was to read the stock pages. I would read the, the business section and look at the stock quotes and ask him about various stocks and stuff like that. And that, that was a, a form of connection for, for me and him. And, and so that was like piqued my interest in what, what invested in. So yeah, I went to Penn and at that point I was pretty sure that I wanted to be in business generally, but I didn't really know what that meant. Uh, my dad had those stage, so I was interested in that to some extent. But I, I frankly didn't fit it, think I fit in with the Wharton kids. I'm nothing to say wrong about Wharton and incredible school. One of the professors who's still there, and, and I would think of as a mentor for me, this guy named Professor Jeremy Siegel. His son is one of my best friends. I got to understand what Wharton was about through him and learned a lot from Jeremy. We wrote a book called Socks for the Long Run. It's one of the best finance professors in the world. I, I kind of had a sense of what Wharton was, but for some reason, I didn't feel like I could fit in there and I had the skills to sort of excel in Wharton. But I also... No, I'm going to be in business. So I decided to, to spend time on exploring what I thought was interesting and sociology and social psychology organizations, like how the world works and why it works, and why people behave the way they do. I think obviously that can be applied to many different things. And for me, it was always looked at through the lens of like business in general. So I would say broadly speaking, I was interested in, in business and then venture capital became something that came out of the, the path, which I think very few people know exactly what they want to do. It's often a windy road to get there. For me, it was having some interest in with, with my parents and my dad in, in investing. And then I think the first deal, if you will, that I tried to get funded was one little company that I started with, which was Campus Doc, which was basically like Craig, Craigslist for college kids, but Facebook Marketplace launched at the same time and didn't really feel like we had the momentum to get off the ground. But I ended up meeting the guys who started Venmo. And not only did I become their intern for a very, very short period of time, I tried to get them funding. Um, so I sent them to friends of friends who said they invested in these types of businesses. And that was my first, like, wow, you could really invest in this. And I had not a dollar in my name to be able to invest in, in the company, but I wanted to put together a deal. So that was like the first example of me as a 20-year-old trying to do what I do now. That's really interesting. And you, you mentioned you were an early team member for the Venmo team. And I know some of the most prestigious universities, they generally have a lot of internships and stuff you can apply for very easily, and they have a lot of support to the students. What made you decide to go through a different route through networking instead of the traditional route? And then how can other students at universities learn to network with others around them? Yeah, I think it's a it's a good a good thing. Most of my friends were going to New York City and being a intern at various consulting and, and investment banking shops and stuff like that. And again, it just it just didn't feel like it suited me. I couldn't imagine going into 
a big office and working on a spreadsheets all day. It just felt like just not do what I wanted. And so I decided to sort of, I just kept my ears open. And I think curiosity is something that I've always been, I remind myself constantly, but want to continue to follow. And I was curious about what those, the Venmo guys were doing. And I heard about what they were up to. And at the time I was sending money back and forth five text messages before for iPhones. So it was kind of an interesting novel idea. I think they were one of the first people using Twilio. And so I just said, hey, what are you guys doing? Can I help? And it was sort of from a point of view of believing in myself and the ability to like add some value and help in some capacity while I didn't have a resume to be someone who works at a, at a software company specifically, I thought that I could hustle. And that was sort of the, that was sort of it. So it's, a, it's an inner belief in, in, in hustle, being able to create good things and, and kind of feeling like the other options that everyone else was doing just didn't, didn't, didn't sit well with me at the time. Absolutely. And you mentioned you studied sociology at, at UPenn. And how have you or have you seen sociology important in investing because you learned about human behavior, whether that be through the patterns that you learned that you could relate to in investing? How, have you been able to apply that, the stuff you've learned in sociology to investing? And then how impactful has that been? Sure. I think it's hard to make the direct relationship between anything that happens 20 years ago to, to now, but certainly I think the mechanisms of like thinking about why people behave the way they do, groups, group behavior, group think, and other things about what, what makes us tick, if you will, this is a way to kind of as a proxy for consumer demand in some capacity. So I don't think there's like a clear, like, oh, I learned this, this network theory and then I applied it. I, I will say that one of the guys that I studied for and really love this guy, Keith Hampton, who I've been still thinking many years, but I think he's a professor now, maybe at Princeton, actually. He had a student that I think was two or three years older than me named Cameron Marlowe, who I haven't spoken to in 20 years, but he became, I think, the head of data science or research at Facebook. So he joined super early. So there was actually an interesting direct link between the sociology department at Penn and industry at, 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 that, at that time. And I remember meeting Cameron when I moved to Silicon Valley, and then up with Cameron, and he was very gracious with his time and kind of gave me the lay of the land to some extent. So I do think well, some folks will poo-poo the, the sociology degrees and those things that seem like fluffy. I think uh, for, for the young folks out there, like, just do the thing that you're really excited about because you're going to end up being really good at it. If you're not excited about this internship, like, you're not going to be good at it. And that's not going to go anywhere. So that'd be my general thought. Definitely. And to get to where you are today, there obviously have been a lot of obstacles throughout the road. What would you say are some of your hardest times throughout life as a VC or life in general? How did it affect you? And then what did you take away from that experience? Yeah, I think the, I think look, the hard times tend to be clarifying. You're just like, how did this thing happen? This company blowed up, blow up or this, this terrible thing in your personal life and, and things like that. So you have these moments of like, Man, this is this is really tough, and it kind of it it it, it puts you down on the ground, and you're literally potentially so you know might be on the ground, and then you kind of you're like, well, what's gonna why why keep going, and what's gonna keep you going, and then you're, you're clarifying on like what your purpose is. So I think to to have a breakthrough, someone's got to break down, and those it's a cliche, and a lot of cliches are right. It turns out that's why they're said a lot, despite them being said often. And I think it's true. It's like you go through these really tough times, and you remember. For me, I remember like having a really difficult time in 2017, and people calling me and saying, "Hey, like uh, we need you, like we want you involved," and it got me 
clarity on like what my purpose and my why was to help these people do the things that they were meant to do. So I could go out saying like, hey, go have terrible things happen to you. It's a great idea. I would say that like they're going to happen and to face them with a degree of optimism that there's going to be a better, tomorrow's going to be better than today. So you kind of have to have this inner belief that tomorrow's going to be a better day than, than today and continue to go. Uh, and these, these things that happen in your life can be SARS that you learn from in character building. Definitely. I agree with that. I think there's always going to be obstacles that happen in life. It's just that the people who are successful take the time to get through them. But now fast forwarding to 2013, you went to Brazil to find companies and that's when you joined with Novel, which when he announced the Angelus syndicates in 2013, you were one of the first people I believe to complete or the first person to complete an Angelus syndicate. And then after that, you just, you joined the team full time in 2015. And then what was that experience like with the Angelus team? And then what were some of the key things that you took away from that? Yeah, so in 2013, I went down to, I kind of resolved that I was going to be a professional investor. So I raised a super small amount of money and no one had heard of my name or knew who I was in Silicon Valley. And I wasn't confident that I was going to be able to really help with people here to an extent that would earn me an allocation in a company that was interesting. But going down to Brazil and talking to the folks down there and understanding the ecosystem a little bit and seeing that there was an opportunity, I was able to just add value. The New York Giants, I'm like, we just pulled up because I'm a diehard Eagles fan. <laughs> and I didn't know that I was talking to one of just just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think they won their last game, right? Yesterday, I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Anyway, so yeah, I went down to Brazil and I and found a really interesting company that I could help because they didn't have much access in Silicon Valley to companies like Desimplica. We brought that up to Naval. And from a timing perspective, he was just starting a syndicate's product. And I said, hey, I've got a really interesting company. And we ended up doing that and raising a bunch of money at a very short period of time, which changed my life. And so from there, I became an advisor at AngelList and was just hooked on the idea that I could actually write meaningful checks for me at the time into really interesting companies and kind of snowball. Other people around me started doing it. And I was sort of helping others and saying, hey, like this thing over here, and I, I become the center of attention. I'm like, hey, how do you how do you do this syndicate thing? Is AngelList legit or not? And Angel's decided that I would be a good spokesman and looking for finding more people, I guess, like me in 2015. And that's why I work full time. They brought me on and my job was just to go find more folks who were interested in using the product and had hustle and wanted to find good deals and didn't necessarily have the capital to do that. So that's kind of how that all started. And then, yeah, I mean, the time with Naval and, and, and the crew there, I mean, it's not him. It, honestly, he's done an incredible job of recruiting really, really, really talented people in the, in the business and company. I think one of the things he initially started at him and maybe about is like, we're going to hire entrepreneurial people, entrepreneurs. And so there was a lot of really incredible creative energy there and people that were just like, in it to win it. And a lot of those folks have gone on to start really great investment firms would be really good entrepreneurs and start other companies like Coinless and Republic and things like that. So the the energy and the people at Sterling XIM, who became my, my full-time partner at Long Journey, the energy and kind of the, the the ethos of the place at the time was really special and has been the returns to compounding. It's like these relationships we've had for many years will, will compound. I'm excited for you. I mean, how old are you again? Currently 17. Oh my God, that's insane. So when you're, I know people are like, oh my God, you're so young, but I'll, so I'll stop there for only a minute. But like, as you get older, like in 10 years from now, these relationships you're building right now are just going to be yeah. so valuable over time. So 
uh, I was, you know, not talking to people that were that I that I wanted to writing cold emails at seven. <laughs> so good on you. Absolutely. I appreciate that. But uh, through your years, uh, many years of investing, I know I do some stuff with as a VC fellow for this firm. And as I started to explore the venture capital space more, has there been a company that you or the founders and the company that you really want to be involved with? You, you think it could go super far, but they might have multiple options from multiple different term sheets or stuff on the table that they can choose from. What do you do then? Are you trying to convince the founders or what do you go through then? I think every situation is different. There, of course, have been competitive situations when we get involved in. And the thing that I, as I said, it's like, depending on the business and what they want, I do think a lot of firms, the seed stage or whatever stage they are, end up selling this idea that they're going to be super helpful. They'll have these platform teams. And I think, to be honest, like, that's great, but it probably has gone too far, the pendulum has shifted too far. Where fundamentally, like the best entrepreneurs will go and get the help they need at the time they need it, but are not oriented towards needing the help because that actually may be a bad sign that they believe that they need something outside of themselves and they're, and they're and they need someone to run a core function of the business, which I think is a very hard thing to outsource in, in general and, and especially the early stages. So. Uh, in terms of like our wanting to desire to like get other funds and stuff like that, we just tell them who we are and we tell them about the experiences we've had with really iconic companies. And you mentioned like this point, it's well above 30 companies that have gone over to over 30 billion, I mean, uh, over a billion dollars. We've seen a ton of really big successes and failures, and there's nothing that across the entire team. So to me, Ariel Zuckerberg and Diane Bannister, he's in the fund, but across the team, we have really great venture partners who are running companies day to day and are running really awesome, interesting businesses, have the empathy to, to help business companies, but they've also sort of seen and done that. And then finally, like we just, we tell them who we are, we lead with our values. We've been, we, we are, one of our key values is be a bubby. I don't know what that means. I do not. What does that mean? Bubby is like a idyllic version of a Jewish grandmother, which means like we want to be helpful and like helping people with yeah. the things that they're on, but also being like stern and say like how it is. So I think that's something that just hopefully comes across by getting in their lives. And so people choose who they want to work with. And, and I think that's a good thing. Um, but ultimately, we think like combined with our experience in, in the business and having done this for a long time. And if you combine Scott and Cyan, Scott Science husband, Scott was one of the first investors in PayPal and sort of seen this incredible emergence over the last what is it, 25 years. That along with like our genuine ability to like want to connect with people and like really be in it for the long run, if you will, the long journey, we end up winning a, a good amount of it. We are also disciplined, like we are here to make our LPs money. So another value is like it's not monopoly money. So we try to make sure that what we're investing in will be good for LPs in the long run. And we make sure of that. So we end up passing on things that are expensive pretty often. Gotcha. And you mentioned before that on a different podcast that one of your investing philosophies is investing in weird or out of the ordinary companies. And I think it's an interesting one that I started to see a pattern with, like, for example, with Tim Draper, he had a separate side to his investing were just a bunch of random companies and those random companies that were not part of 
the other slots in his investing portfolio ended up being companies like Tesla and SpaceX and a bunch of other mm-hmm. ones like Coinbase. But how do you differentiate between out-of-the-ordinary companies who have the opportunity to make really big leaps and then just plain old bad business models or ones that don't have the potential to go that far? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And yeah, our thesis chase the magic of the year. So it's, it's like put into a, into a pithy, into pithy statement. And Tim may have been actually uh, someone who inspired that. I got met him a few times and seen him around Aura. And I would say that he is very much magically weird and probably appreciates the magically weird out there. So it sounds like he was investing in the same and putting in the weird bucket. So it is very much of something that we care about. We've noticed that the best companies at the time look quite odd. Uber is a good example who wants to put people on people's cars. Who thought they were going to go in the random people's cars and here we are. Yeah, it's going to back home. Uh, so it's obviously a mainstream thing. So in terms of the specifics around your your question, like, so we probably all know what weird looks like because unless I guess you're so weird, you think what you're doing is normal and that you're not like the rest of the world, you probably have a sense of like that it's different and out there. So that's like on the surface, maybe why you pay some attention. And then, but I'd say that there's like weird, weird with substance really matters. So you want to ask the questions of like, why are you working on this? Like, I really understand the motivation and like what makes this person tick and what they've found. Like if those things, so you kind of go through a process of like, is while this thing is unlikely, it's other people are going to laugh at this being tried. You, you want to kind of say like, is it logical? Is there logic to what is being tried? And if that's the case, and you think that the person really is ambitious and smart and able to like make has a chance of making it happen, that's kind of so. There's obviously contrarian that is contrarian right, not contrarian and and wrong because the majority of things are contrarian wrong. Like there are bad ideas that exist. That's the thing. So the trick is finding the contrarian right, and the way you do that, and you're not always going to get it right, of course, is to try to follow the story and follow the logic and, and really be independent and be open-minded about what um, may occur and what can happen. Gotcha. And then uh, I think more recently, we've seen a lot of crowded markets, especially with Web3. But even in the past, I think one of the crowded markets was the digital video meeting space, which was companies like Zoom and Skype and stuff like that were super crowded. And at the time when Eric Yuan, the CEO of Zoom, was raising money or decided to raise money, it was super hard for him to convince investors to get money initially because they're like, hey, this is already a crowded market. Microsoft has dominant market share, etc. So for companies, Companies or for founders who might be either starting a company in a crowded market or thinking about it, what's your advice to those people in the audience? I think it's, while I think it's important for any founder to be considering the audience of folks, and I think you're asking like from an investor point of view, how do you plan out to differentiate? Hopefully, like there's a very clear answer on the, I'm building this because I know it's different for my customers and here's why. Like, if you don't have that belief, then you're probably not doing the right thing. So I would say, like, I can't help you find the empathy or rather find, like, the, like, the story of why you want to build what you're building. And, like, that has a very, that's a very personal thing. In terms of how you communicate it to the investors, like, hopefully there are folks out there that'll ask questions that'll dig enough deeper enough to understand, like, they can sort of arrive on the same thing you're arriving on, or more likely, like more people, some people say, sure, I really believe in 
this thing you're up to, more likely what happens is they believe that you believe enough and you're crazy enough that this might actually be a bet work. So I, I don't know if there's any like tricks of the trade to like convince investors on how to stand out, how, convince, how for you to stand out in a crowded market. I'd say like, you can you you can tell when someone's talking and selling and talking about the thing that really gets them going, and you can tell when they're not. So make sure the thing you're working on is something that you really believe in. As sexy as it is to start a company and be a CEO, like there's going to be shitty times. So you like want to you want to like have the battery charged up to the point where you're ready to like deal with a lot of competition and stuff like that. I mean, Pascal, one of our partners at the Black Thirty, he made the investment in Notion, which was I think Evernote was still uh, the dominant player. There were a number of productivity tools out there. And it could have, it was dismissed by many, many other investors and VCs as like another productivity note keeping tool, boring. And what Pascal will tell you, and I wasn't, I didn't see the business as closely as he did at the time, was that like they believed in the platform and and kind of a cross-platform tool that could sit in someone's workflow in the way that it does today. So that was a unique angle and something a unique insight and a vision that the entrepreneurs had that Pascal was willing to get better. And to wrap it up here, what would you say are some of your takeaways for the audience? And then areas or industries you might be looking at or out of the ordinary industries you might be looking at going in 2022 and then going into 2023? Yeah, I mean, look, like I think it's going to be a hard time in general in the economy in the next year or two. So that's really exciting. If I were really excited about a particular business, the competition potentially would be is less. So I like to think that there are opportunities and have the first fund, I, I first angel investment, angel fund. And I can't, that was more of an odd to like, there's a lot of really great opportunities in, in dislocation and things that are moving. And so while it seems like a tough time, your parents may tell you, like, don't go get a job. Like, if you really believe in what you're up to, like, go for it. Like, you're going to learn a ton. And I think it's really important for people to do what they believe in. And, and in these weird times, school and stuff like that, like, we need the entrepreneurial spirit to be a guiding light to kind of, like, build the businesses and solve the problems we have more than ever. So that's my like my general thought. Definitely. And then any out of the ordinary industries you're taking a look mm -hmm. at this year? Yeah, we're generalists. So I try to be very open-minded. An area that I think is pretty interesting and I think Andrew's done a really nice job of putting themselves out there. And this is where I think is like basically America first businesses or companies that are focused on American dynamism. So Things that are bringing restoring in U.S. manufacturing. Like if there's an Alibaba for the Americas out there, we would be interested in looking at it. So maybe some of your listeners might might know of that. So I think that's a, a particularly interesting area um, that we've been focusing on. And Zion has been someone who's cared, John Zion has someone who's cared a ton about the Constitution for um, as long as they've, they've been around and have dedicated their life to, to making it be a, an important part of their philanthropy and stuff like that. And it's also an area that I think can be an investment area. Absolutely. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for today's episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to drop a five-star review down below. And a special thanks to Lee for taking the time to join the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, James.